Um, let's get started in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for a gorgeous day out. Thank you for this time we have to study your word. Open our hearts and minds. Help us to understand it. Thank you for this great opportunity to study. In Christ's name, amen. Um, Dan's not here today. He's over teaching the ambassador class. So he asked my mother to sit in and make sure my theology is straight. Um, this is my mother right here. Yeah. She's the best mother I have. So, um, yeah. yeah. Oh, you got that. You got that. You got that. All right. Yeah. People say my, uh, my uh, personality comes from my mom, so, which is probably a good thing. Um, last week we were talking about conversion, regeneration, all those things. And uh, we got mucked down a little bit in definitions and all of that kind of stuff. So what I did is I put together a little chart here. This will be put up on the website and we're also going to work on trying to get the copies for everybody here. And all it is is just a little chart, a little timeline chart that shows the work of the Holy Spirit and, and the various uh, terms that the Bible uses to refer to our salvation. At the top here, you have the pre-conversion work. This is before you are a believer. Pre-conversion. You're not yet a Christian. And then what happens is that the Bible says at a moment in time you are justified. Justification. We're going to talk about this term a lot later. What justification is, is a declaration of your innocence before God. God declares you righteous. So as far as the penalty of sin goes, you are declared to be completely righteous. You're acquitted before the bar of God. And that is a point in time thing. That is an irreversible thing. You can't go back on that. Once you're justified, you're justified forever. Now in Catholicism, they make justification a process. You're in the process of being justified as you do the rituals, attend the Mass, things like that. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible clearly teaches that justification is something that happens at a point in time. You pass from death to life. It's irreversible. Following justification, you have what we call sanctification. What does that mean? Be made holy. Sanctify means to be made holy. And this is a process. Hopefully you're more holy today than you were a year ago. Hopefully you're getting better. You're on the way up. And this is a work of the Holy Spirit as you... As you um, depend on the Holy Spirit, as you study the Word of God, as you pray, as you grow in your spiritual life, hopefully you see a decreasing pattern of sin. You see a, a greater holiness in your life. This is the process of sanctification. And then at some point when you die or when the Lord comes back, we have glorification. What is that? That's the full realization of everything you have in salvation. Right now we've got the down payment. We've been saved. We've been, we have the Holy Spirit as a down payment. But someday we're going to get the whole thing. Someday we are going to be face to face with God. Someday we're going to receive our glorified body. Someday all that God has promised us will be fulfilled. That is glorification. And then we have the eternal state where we are with God face to face forever. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, underneath that you have conviction. What does the Holy Spirit do before you're saved? He convicts. And, and notice how, how that, that's a growing kind of thing, right? Some of you may remember before you were saved how there would be these moments of conviction as you get a growing awareness of your sin. But then one day all of a sudden it just really hit you. 
the knowledge of your sin just really hit you and you realize you're standing before God and your need for forgiveness. But it is the work of the Holy Spirit that brings conviction. If the Holy Spirit does not bring conviction, there is no salvation. You cannot be saved without being convicted of your sin. And then there is a point in time where these five things happen. That's a justification. What happens? The Holy Spirit regenerates you. What does that mean? To be made alive. You were dead in sin. Now you're alive. You were insensitive to God. Now you're sensitive to the things of God. How many of you remember before your salvation, you look at the Bible and it's like reading a book on nuclear physics. It just didn't make sense. Then after you became a believer, all of a sudden, he said, how can I have missed that? It's so clear. It's, it's there. I see it. I understand it. What is that? That's the Holy Spirit bringing life to you. You can understand it now. You can see it. It makes sense. That's the result of regeneration. Also, at this point in time, you have a couple other words that go in here. Repentance. What is that? Turning away from sin. Repentance is not changing your mind about who Jesus is. Some will say, well, repentance is you just change your mind about Jesus. No, it's more than that. How do you know it's more than that? Well, remember when John the Baptist had all the people coming to him? And uh, he, what, was he, what was his message, by the way? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they asked him, well, what do you mean by that? And what did he say? Remember? He didn't say, well, just change your mind about the Messiah. He said, if you have two coats, give a coat away, right? If somebody wants you to go with them a mile, go with them two. Soldiers, you need to be content with your wages. In other words, repentance always carries with it action. Action. There's a change. There's a change of direction. You're going this way, you turn around, and you go that way. That's what repentance is. It's not just changing your mind about Jesus. Of course, that's part of it. But it's a complete reversal of your life. Faith. What is that? Faith is full belief, full trust in Jesus Christ. And I put this little acronym down here that I wrote on the board a few weeks ago. What is faith? Faith is a belief in the facts. What has God told us? There's a content to our faith. There's stuff you need to know. Who Jesus is. What did he do? Why did he come? Your condition. Those are facts. But those are mere facts. People can believe the facts and not be a Christian. What do you have to do? You have to affirm that these are valid facts. You have to affirm that they're true. That they're accurate. That that is true. And then they're true for me. They're true for me. You internalize them. But that doesn't save you yet. Next, you need to put your complete trust in those things. What did Paul say? He said, you know, I was counting on my lineage. I was counting on my, I was, you know, circumcised eighth day, tribe of Judah, or tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. And when I saw Christ, I trashed everything that I was depending on for him. That's what salvation is. Salvation is you abandon everything that you were depending on for your salvation and Christ alone. Because he is the only way. And then hope is a certain anticipation of future glory. It's not that I think it might happen. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. It's a certainty. It's a certainty. I know it will. I'm just waiting for it to happen. That's what biblical hope is. You know, we talk about hope in this in our world, hope is one of those iffy things, right? 
I hope the Browns do something other than lose this year. I hope. That's hope. Sometimes that's a bad hope, but it's hope. Um, the biblical hope is a certain anticipation. It's going to happen. It, it, I just don't have it yet. It's mine, but it's not yet. That's what hope is. And who gives you that hope? The Holy Spirit. It's not you. It's the Holy Spirit. Along with this, we have this thing called spirit baptism. Now, in spite of what they tell you on TV, spirit baptism is not running amok. It's not losing your mind. It's not rolling around on the floor. It's not speaking in tongues. When you look at the scriptural, and we're going to look at this, when you look at what the Bible says about spirit baptism, it is the Holy Spirit placing you within the body of Christ at the time He gives you a spiritual gift. It could be teaching, it could be admonition, it could be mercy, it could be helps. There's all kinds of spiritual gifts. But this is the Holy Spirit placing you into the body of Christ. Baptism is identification. You're being identified with the body of Christ. If you are a believer today, you are part of the body of Christ. We are called part of His body. Ephesians talks about us being members of His body. How do we get there? The Holy Spirit put us into the body of Christ. He identified us with the body of Christ. That's what spirit baptism is. It's not speaking in tongues. It's not getting some miraculous sign on you. It's not frothing at the mouth. It is, a, it is an invisible work whereby the Spirit places you in the body of Christ. And then we have this concept of sealing. What's that? That's where the Holy Spirit places God's seal on you. In the ancient times when you put a seal on something, what did that signify? Ownership. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It's irreversible. You can't lose your salvation. You can't undo what God has done. It's not possible. We are sealed unto the day of redemption, the Bible says. And then in our current period of sanctification, what does the Spirit do? Well, He indwells us. He fills us. He gives us strength day by day to do the things that please Him. And filling of the Holy Spirit means nothing more than being led by the Spirit. Day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, are you doing what God wants you to do? That's the filling of the Spirit. Nothing more mystical than that. Allowing God to control you in your life. When something happens, you think it, of it in biblical terms. You think of it in terms of eternity. Are you stuck in time? That's all the filling of the Spirit is. We're going to talk more about that. Then in the eternal state, what is our relationship with the Spirit in the eternal state? Well, it's interesting. In Revelation, at the end it says, The Spirit and the Bride say... Come. What is that a picture of? Fellowship. Fellowship. It's interesting. What, what's fascinating to me is the inner revelation, the spirit and the bride. Well, who's the bride? We are. We're the bride. Church. It's the bride of Christ. We are inviting people to heaven. What does that imply about us in heaven? It's not rocket science. If I invite you to my house, what, what does that mean? It's, it's my house. I have the right to invite you. The Spirit and the Bride, it shows a connection between the Spirit and the church. They're home. There's fellowship there, face to face. We're going to have that throughout all of eternity. Face to face fellowship with God, with the Holy Spirit. It's interesting. Now if you want to look at it from a theological perspective, if you really want to dig in this theologically... Pick up a commentary on the book of Romans and go through it. Because Romans lays this out. What do you see in Romans chapter 1 through 320? Conviction. 
Paul lays out the, the case of all men before God. At the end he says, Every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. You're, we're guilty. He goes to the heathen. He says, here's why the heathen is pagan or, or uh, lost. Here's why the Gentile is lost. Here's why the Jew is lost. All of them are lost. All of them stand before God condemned. What do you do? Well, then we have justification. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then we have the results of that. What does it mean to be justified? It means that the war is over between me and God. I have a relationship with Him. I have the love of the Holy Spirit shed abroad in my heart, Romans 5. And then we have sanctification in Romans 6, the struggle. Remember Paul says the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Who's going to deliver me from the body of this death? That's the call of a Christian. That's the struggle of a believer. Some people say, well, you know, I struggle with sin. I must not be a Christian. No. Do unbelievers struggle with sin? No. Believers struggle with sin. So if you're struggling with sin, it's not because you're an unbeliever. It's because you're a believer. Because unbelievers don't have the struggle. They do what's natural. And then in Romans 8, we have glorification. So you see all of these things um, in view here. This will be up on the website. And we're also going to get copies for everybody. So don't worry about trying to draw the picture out. But what I wanted to do is give you sort of a, a, an understanding overall of, of these terms and how they fit. Okay, so that when we come back to this again and again, it'll make sense to you as we go through this. All right? Yeah? Uh, under your academic faith, even though I am totally with you on the internalization, the thing that struck me when I read your explanation of the word, in fact, for me, mm-hmm. uh, it reminds me of this postmodern thinking where your truth is yours and yeah. mine, and I know that's not what you mean. No, it's not. See, there's two steps to this. There's number one. There's an affirmation that whatever these facts are of the gospel, they're they're accurate. Um, Jesus did die on the cross. He did pay a substitutionary death. He he took my place. I believe those are true. But I can believe those are true for you, but you know, I'll get to heaven via Buddha or via some other way. And that's this step here. No, not only are they true in general, they're true specifically for me. That's, that's the difference. And you're right. The postmodernist will stop at this point. The postmodernist says, okay, fine. If you want to believe in Jesus and you want to believe the gospel, that, and that, that's fine for you. But, you know, I, I sort of believe, uh, I believe in Buddha. Or I'll believe in Muhammad, or I'll believe something else. What this says is that they are true for everyone, They're including me. That's what that means. And then trust is, because, of, because they're true, and this is my only way, I have to put all my eggs into that basket. It's not Jesus and. You understand the gospel is not Jesus and. It's Jesus alone. Paul did not say, I'm going to add Jesus to my... Circumcised the eighth day. I'm going to add Jesus to my being born of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm going to add Jesus to my Judaism. I'm going to add Jesus to my being a Pharisee. He didn't add. He replaced. And that's the thing about salvation. It's a total abandonment of everything. All that you are for all that he is. You don't keep back part of it. I remember when Ellie was here, our German exchange student, she struggled with this. Because she kept wanting... She wanted salvation. She wanted to be to be, a, be born again, but she, she wanted to hang on to the steering wheel, she said. 
And finally there came a point in her life when she said, Fooly on it. You can have the steering wheel. And as soon as she said that, all of a sudden, she knew that God had saved her. Because it's not... You don't get to heaven while you sitting in the driver's seat, Jesus over on the other side, with his hand on the wheel a little bit. You let go. You slide over and let him drive. Alright, that's when salvation comes. And what we're taught today is that you can have Jesus and something else. It's not Jesus alone. Folks, the Bible says it's Jesus alone. Jesus, it's not Jesus... There's a good sermon by Dr. Vance Hammer, a great preacher of old. He says, Jesus never comes next. Jesus is never next. Jesus is Jesus alone. And that's, that's when salvation comes. So let's get back to where we left off last week. Yeah. Right. In Pastor's sermon, he very pointedly made that point that he didn't know. Um, knowing what Pastor believes, okay. he does not believe what... How can I put it? Jesus did not, in essence, become sin. He became sin in the sense he took upon himself the sin of the world. But in essence, he did not become sin. Okay. Yeah. He didn't become sin. That wasn't clear. Yeah, it's like God treated Jesus as though Jesus did every sin that all of us ever committed. That's exactly what he, he did. He, he, he became like us. But in his, in his essence, in who God is, God could not become sin. All right, that's that's the, the difference there, and, and that's the, you know that's a that's a fine theological difference. Well, I, I I I'm pretty sure you can ask him, ask him, you know, ask him. But I think you'd understand. I think what what he's trying to get across is Jesus became our sin bearer. He became like it's like the goat in the Old Testament. You know, when they the, the scapegoat, did that scapegoat in essence become sinful? Well, no, but it took upon himself the sin of the people when it was taken out into the wilderness. All right, talking about regeneration. Um, what is regeneration? It's where the Holy Spirit brings to the spiritual life the dead sinner. You're dead in trespasses and sin. You're totally insensitive to the things of God. And one day, all of a sudden, the light goes on and you understand. That is regeneration. Now, we got bogged down a little bit on the order of this. We'll, we'll talk about that later. I'm going to... What's out on that? And we're going to cover that in soteriology. Do you believe and then are you regenerated? Or are you regenerated and then you believe? We'll sort that out. Okay? For now, let's understand what regeneration is. Regeneration is the Holy Spirit bringing life to you. And that's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. And you hath he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. God makes us alive. God brings spiritual life. And that's something that, that you know, sometimes... The longer you're a Christian, the more you take it for granted. You know, I look at TV and I see these idiots on these talk shows. And I'm wondering, how can they be so stupid? You know why they're so stupid? They're not saved. What do you expect? They're dead. They're dead in sin. What do you expect? What do you expect Geraldo to say? 
I expect him to say things that are wrong. He's, he's not alive. And, and that's not one of the things we've got to worry about. That could become a pride issue to us, right? Well, I'm brighter than that. I'll tell you why you're brighter than that. You have the Holy Spirit and he doesn't. It's not your great intellectual prowess that makes you that. It is, is the Holy Spirit that gives you life and understanding and insight. And instead of seeing these people as enemies, you need to have pity on them. Because they don't have the Holy Spirit. What do you expect them to think and act and talk like? You expect that. It's the Holy Spirit that brings life, that brings awareness, that brings understanding to us. Let's look at Romans 8, 1-11. We didn't get there last week. I didn't hear you. Do I have another one of those? No, I'm out of them. Yeah, is there one more? Ooh, there's one more. You lucked out. How's that? Romans 8, 1 through 11. Romans is my favorite book in the Bible. Romans 8 is my favorite chapter in the Bible. Yeah, life in the Spirit. This is talking about the Holy Spirit. All right? And let's look at uh, Romans chapter 8 here. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. What does that mean? Yeah. If you're in Christ Jesus, if you have been regenerated, there's no condemnation for you. You will never stand before God and have Him tell you, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity in the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. There's no condemnation for us. We are declared righteous. And see, that's what justification means. Justification does not mean just as if I'd never done it. It doesn't mean that. It means God has acquitted you and has granted you the righteousness of Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law here is principle. The principle of the Spirit of life has made you free from the principle of sin. What's the principle of sin? Condemnation. What has the Holy Spirit done? The Holy Spirit has freed you from condemnation. The Holy Spirit has granted you life. set you free. And freedom, it's interesting if you look back in Romans 6, freedom is not freedom to do anything you want. Right? Because all of us are slaves, aren't we? And, and Paul makes it very clear, you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. Pick one. Alright? Slaves to sin lead to death. Slaves to God lead to life. Who's slave do you want to be? Nobody's free. You know, people say, well, you know, I don't want to become a Christian. I want to be free. You're not free. You're enslaved to sin. And you get your wages someday, which is death. But it says here, the Spirit has made us free for what? For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. What could the law not do? Couldn't justify it. Why? Well, what's it say there? Why couldn't it justify us? The flesh is weak, right? I can't do it. My flesh is... Here, understand something here. Your flesh is incapable of obeying God and pleasing God. It's incapable. It can't happen. If you're operating in the flesh, you can't please God, Period. You can't keep the law of God. You can't do it. You're st- it, it, it won't work. 
So what did God have to do? He had to bring a new principle into play here because if not, there's no hope. And what principle is that? The principle of the spirit of life. The regeneration, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit has freed you from the principle of sin that has enslaved you. And it's the only thing that could because if it wasn't for grace, how would you have to be saved? Perfect. And out of the 40 billion people that have lived, 39,999,999,999 didn't. Only one did. Christ. The Spirit does that. Huh? I didn't hear you. Enoch, Enoch, he was probably better than most, but he still had his, uh, I'm sure as growing up, he was a little rascal at times. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How is the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us? By works or by the, by the Spirit? By the Spirit. By faith. That's how it is. God declares you righteous. And it's by the Spirit that this happens. It's the Holy Spirit that's doing this, folks. The Holy Spirit is not making you act erratically. The Holy Spirit is not making you froth at the mouth and roll on the floor. The Holy Spirit brings spiritual life to you. This is a very sane kind of thing that the Holy Spirit does. And listen to this. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To, be set, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, when you look at this passage, some people say, well, this is talking about a spiritual Christian and an unspiritual Christian. No. What's it talking about? Saved and, un- and unsaved. Regenerate and lost. What's it saying? If you are in the flesh, which means you are not a believer, what do you think about? What's your mind set on? The things of the flesh. And it says here, you cannot please God. You can't. The lost person cannot please God. Period. Nothing they do will be pleasing to the Lord. They might do the right thing, but they do it for the wrong motive. You can't please God in the flesh. It just it ain't going to happen. Because the flesh here, it says, is hostile to God. Your flesh... When we talk about flesh, what are we talking about? Maybe we should define that. Your fallenness. Your humanness. What is your fallenness? Your fallenness is a focus on yourself. It's a focus on you, what you want. And it's hostile to God. No. Yeah. The, when the Bible uses the old man or old nature, that's talking about our identification with Adam, I believe. Who are we identified with now? Christ. So our old man is gone. It's dead. But we still have flesh. Yeah, we still have flesh. Follow that? 
The Bible talks about flesh. It talks about where's the war. In fact, if you look through the New Testament, where's your great war? What keeps you from doing what you want to do? Your flesh. It's not the devil. Alright? We're going to talk about spiritual warfare later on. Listen, these guys are always talking about how you've got to bind the devil and you got to you know, call this demon this and stop. It, that's nuts. That's not where the battle is. That's not where the battle lies. Satan is not walking around trying to get you to commit a sin. He really doesn't. He doesn't need to. You know why? You do, you do it well yourself. You don't need his help. You really don't need... Now, can Satan tempt? Can demons tempt? Sure they can. But they're not around... They're not... You know, you don't have a demon assigned to you to try to get you to commit a sin all day long. It's your flesh. And that's where the battle lies. And, and whenever we're talked about, you know, in the, whole, in the New Testament, whenever it talks about being holy and, and dealing with sin, it's always talking about flesh, 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 flesh. That's where the real battle lies. How does Satan tempt you? Through the flesh. How does the world tempt you? Through the flesh. Therefore, if you want to win, where do you go? The fallenness. And, and it's... It, it's the fallenness that is resident in your physical body. That, that's how Paul paints it in Romans 6 and 7. Your, your, your flesh, your fallenness is contained in your physical body here. And that is why we get a new body. God throws this one away and gives us a new one. Alright? The principle of sin, in fact, he calls about the principle of sin in our members. Okay? And that's what causes us to sin. It's our fallenness. Our old nature, what is that? That's done away with. We are identified with Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Word there, new, is not new in sense of time. It's new in sense of quality, in sense of essence, in sense of what it is. You are brand new in Christ. However, your new nature, your new connectedness to God, your life in Christ, the, the life that we have is still encased in a body that has flesh. And that is where the fight lies. And that's what Paul struggles with in Romans 7. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Why? Because I am fleshy. That's an interesting word. Sarkikos. I'm fleshy. I'm sold under sin. I have to struggle with the flesh. And that's where our battle lies, folks. And the only way we can have victory over our flesh is via the Holy Spirit. That's the only way you win. You can't win on your own. You can't get up in the morning and say, well, I decided I'm not going to sin today. It doesn't happen. Usually, it, I usually blow that one before I get out of the driveway. All right? It doesn't work. You can't decide. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us life. The Holy Spirit enables you to live a spiritual life. And that's why you have to depend on the Holy Spirit, because you can't do it in and of yourself. And it says here, those that are in the flesh, verse 8, cannot please God. You can't. It's impossible. And then verse 9, look at this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Alright, so who are in, who's in the Spirit? Believers. Who's not in the Spirit? Unbelievers. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. Period. You're not a believer. You're not a believer. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your 
mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. What happens to our mortal body someday? We lose it. And we get a new one. We get a new one where, where we don't have flesh to deal with. We don't have to fight the flesh. And you know what's interesting? What, the thing I love so much about heaven is I can't screw it up. Right? If you just went to heaven the way you were, it, you would, none of us would last long. It'd empty out real quick. Nobody would be there. And that's why God has to give us a new body where, where righteousness dwells in it. And who does it? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And it starts with regeneration. He makes you alive. He brings spiritual life to you. And that is an irreversible process. God does not go back on it. God does not make you spiritually alive. And then, you know, when you're more bothered than you were, He says, forget it. You know, I shouldn't have done this. And the Spirit leaves you. No. We're made spiritually alive. And two agents, we talked about this last week a little bit, two agents are needed for regeneration. Number one, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. How does God save you? How do, how do you know what your condition is? By hearing the Word of God. That's why it's nutsy for that. You know, I told you about that church in California, how to, how to evangelize without using the Bible. How do you do that? You don't. When Jesus Christ evangelized, what did he use? The Word of God. I don't know. I don't know. What kind of message do you have? See? No, don't get me going on that. Um, the, the whole point here is, folks, the whole point here, we we understand as believers, there's power in the Word of God. Because what does the Word of God do in an unbeliever's heart? When energized by the Holy Spirit, it convicts them. It pricks them. It is the Word of God that brings life. It's not your great intellectual prowess and ability and your persuasive abilities that's going to bring somebody to Christ. You could take every EE course on the planet and nothing will happen. It's the Holy Spirit. A good friend of mine who's in EE said, uh, he went out on a call and he said, we did a presentation. They should have taped it. It was perfect. It was the perfect EE presentation. We did everything right. I said, what happened? Nothing. Nothing happened. And then he said, next week we went out and we did an EE presentation. I should have taped that one. Because we did everything wrong. That's not the way you do it. I said, what happened? Well, everybody got saved. What's the point? The point is, it's not you. It's, it's the Word of God, as empowered by the Spirit of God, that brings life. That's what brings life. So, use the Word of God, folks. Don't be ashamed of it. We, you know, it's like, we're almost ashamed to pull the Bible out on somebody. You don't need to be. When uh, Christ was tempted by Satan, what did he use? Scripture. I like what Vance Havner says. If he could defeat the devil with three verses from Deuteronomy, what should you do with the whole Bible? We have the Word of God. We don't need to run and hide. And God uses the Word of God, I mean, the Spirit... Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to bring life. And that's why you need to bring the Word of God to bear. Whenever you preach and teach and you don't use the Bible and you use stories and anecdotes and all that kind of stuff, that doesn't do anything. It's got to go back to the Word of God. It's got to go back to the, what does the Scripture say. You need to be in the Word. And that's one of the things that Dan is really pushing for the classes to do. To be what? In the Bible. If you want to use a book, that's fine. But get back to the Scripture. This is where the power is. Reading a book isn't going to help you. Reading this book does. 
I like the way I, I was listening to a lot of um, sermons on by Vance Havner this week, so I got a lot of his illustrations. He said uh, he said reading the Word of God should be like an electrician wiring a house with the electric on. It should shock you as you read through it. There's power here. This is a different book, as as energized by the Holy Spirit. What is baptism? Baptism of the Spirit. Now, again, if you pick up the book on by Benny Hinn, baptism of the Spirit is a second work of grace whereby, okay, you're saved, you're sort of like wallowing around, you're really not getting anywhere, and then you get this divine zap, and then you make it to a second level of power. And then since that book went so well, he wrote a third book where you get to a third level of power. You know, you get the indwelling or whatever he called it, I think it was. I forget what, uh, what term he used, but... Uh, Folks, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says baptism is where the Spirit places into the body of Christ. We are identified. Understand what baptism is. When we think of baptism, what do we think of? If I just toss baptism out, what do you think of? You get dunked. Right? You get dunked in the water. Or if you're Catholic, you you get sprinkled or whatever. Right. That's what we think of. We think of baptism being dunked in the water. And although the word baptizo in the Bible does mean to dip or immerse in water, it also has the connotation of identification. We are identified with Christ. Romans chapter 6 brings this out. This is, Romans 6 is a dry chapter. There's no water here in Romans 6. Okay? It says here, verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, that's quoted a lot at baptisms, right? Buried, with the likeness of his, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his... Yeah, Bob Troy did that. All right. Now, is that a good picture, maybe, of what it is, what salvation is? Yeah, sure. But is that what the Bible's definition is? What does it mean when John baptizes? John baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? That's not a trick question. No. What was he baptizing them for? Repentance. All right? And when you look at baptism, what you find in baptism is very interesting. You go back in history and you find baptism was something that was used not only... The early church adopted it. It was used earlier on in Judaism. And it was, a, it was a, a ritual, a rite, whereby you made a public affirmation and proclamation of identification with something. For example, in the Essene community, when you went through the training, at the end there, you were baptized. And once you were baptized, you were an official member of the Essene community. And baptism, the significance of baptism... And it is not in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It is in identification with Christ, a public proclamation. When you're baptized, you're saying, I'm identifying publicly with Christ. I'm identifying with Him. And that's what baptism here is in the Spirit. Baptism in the Spirit is, the Holy Spirit is taking you and identifying you, placing you into the universal body of Christ. We are buried with Him by baptism. Into his death. What does it mean? It means that when Christ died, what Paul is getting at here in Romans 6, is when Christ died on the cross, we died with him via identification. Now, did we die physically? No. But we were identified with Christ, so when he died, we died. 
When he was buried, we were buried. When he rose again, we rose again. And Paul makes the point in Romans 7 that the law is operative over living people, right? So therefore, if you're dead and you rise again, the law has no more power over you. That's the point. We're identified with Christ. That's spirit baptism. The spirit is identifying us with Christ in his death, his burial, his resurrection. He's identifying us with the universal body of Christ. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the original meanings of it was when cloth is dipped into dye. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes part of it. Yeah. You can't separate it. Right. So that became even a more accurate picture of what happens when you're baptized into Christ. Yeah. Please understand, I'm not trying to say baptism by immersion is a bad thing. It's a good thing. Yeah. It's a good picture. It's a great picture. All right? Of what it is. But the significance of baptism is not getting under the water and out of the water. The significance of baptism is identification, a public identification with Christ. And in fact, that's the way it is in many cultures. In Nepal, you can be a Christian all day long, but as soon as you're baptized, you're an enemy of the state. Because now you're identified with the church. Now it's official. Alright? And that's, that's identification. Um, when it says that all were baptized into Moses, talk about the Israelites. They were all baptized into Moses. What does it mean they were baptized into Moses in the wilderness? He dunked them all in the Red Sea one by one? No. What were they? They were identified with him in the wilderness. Identification is the, is the main concept. The idea is putting a cloth in dye and having it become infused with the dye, inseparable. When we are placed in the body of Christ, we are placed into it, we become inseparable from it. It's, a, it's an act that happens at the moment of salvation. Yeah. Another, uh, in the Greek, for the word, another meaning is to be whelmed, W-H-E-L-M, which is where we get to be overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. So to be whelmed, to be totally immersed, to be totally identified, to be totally put under mm-hmm. and so I was amazed when I, when I found that out a few years ago yeah. and thus I figured out just by the word well when we're overwhelmed we're you know well I, I grew up a good Baptist you know and whenever you talk about baptism you talk about immersion but the New Testament word means much more than that when Christ was baptized by John what was he doing did John baptize him in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit? Of course not. He is the Son. Can't be that, right? Did Christ need to repent? No. He, he didn't do any sin. Why was he baptized? He was showing us the way. Well, he was, he was showing us that, but what's another thing? Huh? With what? No. No. Huh? No. Well, what John was saying? What was John saying? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Christ is, when Christ was baptized, Christ was affirming visibly message of John is true. That's right. He didn't. He didn't need repentance. The message of John: Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then what did Christ do? He immediately went out and he began preaching the 
kingdom of heaven, which is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's identification with the message of John. It's to validate, if anything, what John was saying was true. Christ is saying, this is right. You need to repent. He didn't need repentance because he committed sin, but it was identifying with the message, the ministry of John. Shown the way for us. That's what baptism and spirit baptism is a once. It happens once. It's not a second anointing of the spirit. It's not where you get a divine zap and you get kicked up to a higher level of spiritual life. It is a once for all act whereby the spirit places you into the body of Christ, identifies you with Christ, and it's an inseparable thing where you become infused into the body of Christ such that you can't become out of it. It's a once for all thing. Um, 1 Corinthians 12.13 is, is an important um, verse on this. 12.13 says, um, For in one spirit we were all baptized. What's the verb tense on that? Past. You were. Now, it's not that you are. And by the way, on, on, on the spiritual continuum, where was Corinth? Corinth. They were down at the lower end, weren't they? They were probably the most ungodly church of all of them. And yet they were baptized into the Spirit. It happens once. It's not, and there's nothing more simple than that, folks. It's, there's nothing more complicated than that. It's Christ. It's, it's not Christ. It's the Holy Spirit identifying you, placing you within the body of Christ. And there's some other verses on that. That's what the baptism of the Spirit is. What is the sealing of the Spirit? The Holy Spirit identifies the believers belonging to God and acts as a down payment assuring future glorification. It's like an engagement ring. It's irreversible. God, the Holy Spirit seals you. You were sealed past tense. He has given us the earnest of the inheritance. It says in Ephesians chapter 1. The earnest of the Spirit. Earnest, Erebon, down payment. It's God placing His stamp on you. And that's interesting because you see that picture many times in the New Testament, don't you? Um, in Revelation, when you get 666, what are you doing? Who are you identifying with? Satan and the beast. And if you do that, you're done for, right? Eternally. Um, in Ezekiel, it's interesting, in Ezekiel, we have a picture of a man with an inkhorn and he's told to go throughout... Israel, throughout Judah, starting at the temple, and seal, put an ink sign, a seal, on all who weep and sigh for the sin of Israel. And then the angels with these swords are said, you, do, you need to follow them out and kill everybody who does not have the seal on them. It's an interesting picture. I think it's Ezekiel 8 or 9, one of those chapters. That's a picture of God sealing those that are His. Now, does God know who are His? Yeah, he's not mistaken, right? He doesn't. He's not. He, he he knows those that are truly born again. He knows those that are is. And how does he know that they are sealed by the Holy Spirit? A seal in the and again in the Bible times, a simple it's ownership. And if you sealed something, the only one that had authority to break the seal was the one who made the seal. It was an official stamp. It was usually a ring, an official stamp. God has placed His stamp on you. That doesn't come off. It's indelible ink. And it's the Holy Spirit who seals us, who, 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 who does that. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. 
It's a good verse on this. Ephesians 1.13 talks about this. Ephesians 1.13 is part of the longest sentence in the Bible. I didn't know, you didn't know that, did you? It's the longest sentence in the Bible. But in 13, in him, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed. Were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Again, what's the verb tense there? Were sealed. Once. You were sealed. When did that happen? At the moment of salvation. Remember our chart when I first showed it? What happens at the point of salvation? You are baptized into the body of Christ. You are sealed with the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit regenerates you. All of these things happen at the moment of your salvation. The Holy Spirit identifies believers belonging to God. After your salvation, what does the Spirit do? Well, we have the indwelling. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in which He indwells a believer in order to comfort, guide, and empower the believer for service. This is, again, it's an irreversible thing. Remember Christ said, if I don't go away, I will not send the comforter. And one of the things that we have in the New Testament time here is we have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now stop and think about that. What does that mean? That means everything you do, you're dragging the Holy Spirit along with you. You realize that? You commit sin, the Holy Spirit is there. He indwells you. He empowers you. In fact, it is the Holy Spirit that enables you to understand what is being taught today. It's the Holy Spirit that gives you understanding and spiritual truth. It's the Holy Spirit that helps you live the spiritual life. It's His constant indwelling that is there. And that's a permanent indwelling. It's not taken away. Remember what it says in Romans chapter 8. If any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a believer. And this happens at the moment of salvation. The Spirit comes and takes a permanent residency in you. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives you understanding in all spiritual truth. Roman, or 1 Corinthians 2 12 here says, how can you... The natural man, it can't know the things of the Spirit of God. Who, who does that? It's the Holy Spirit in you that enables you to understand spiritual truth. John 14, 20. When He comes, He will be with you and in you. He won't go away. He won't leave you. John 7, 37-39. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Ephesians 3, 16. All of these talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's a permanent resident within us. And it maintains our spiritual connection. Your spiritual life is not something that exists apart from the Holy Spirit. Your spiritual life only exists because you have the Spirit in you. That's what enables you to understand. If the Holy Spirit withdraws Himself from you, you go back to the deadness you came from. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us life. He indwells us. What's the filling of the Spirit? It's an act whereby the Holy Spirit guides the believer moment by moment. We are filled with the Spirit of God. This is one of the commands of the Bible. It says, be being kept filled by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians talks about that. Ephesians 5.18. Be being kept filled. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, think of um, probably one of, the, one of the best terms there is, is a sailboat. How does a sailboat move? The wind does what? fills the sail. How should we move? The Holy Spirit should fill our 
sail, so to speak. Now, how are you filled by the Spirit? How do you... Somebody said, I hear it. Reading of the Word. In fact, it's interesting, Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians 3, it talks about, or Ephesians 5, and I can't remember, I think it's Colossians 3. It says, uh, in Ephesians 5 it says, If you're filled with the Spirit, you sing to yourselves in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs. In Corinthians it says, or Colossians I mean, it says, Let the Word of God dwell in you and speak to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So it's interesting, by letting the Word of God dwell in you is equivalent to letting the Spirit fill you. How do you know what does God wants you to do? You're filled with the Word of God. The, the filling of the Spirit and the filling of your life with the Word of God go hand in hand. Because the Holy Spirit is going to bring the Word of God to your heart and it's going to help you understand what is true. And you need to ask to be filled with the Spirit. Yeah, that's right. If you're filled with the Spirit, you're not filled with yourself. Alright, it's one or the other. And how did Christ do His entire ministry? Being full of the Holy Spirit. That's how Christ did it. You understand that the spiritual life is impossible for you to live? You can't. The only way you can even come close is you need to be filled with the Spirit. And that's, it's nothing more mystical than this, folks. There's no mysticality about it. It's just allowing the Spirit of God to guide you and to lead you. And how do you do that? You let the Word of God dwell in you. When you're faced with a decision, what does God want me to do? What, is the whole, what does the Word of God say? How should I respond to this? That's all it is. It's nothing more complex or complicated than that. Empowerment. What's that? The Holy Spirit empowers you. And this is really used in spiritual gifts. You know, all of us in here have a spiritual gift. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. Everybody in here has a spiritual gift that is unique only to you and only you can do. And, and, and what is that gift? That is a ministry for the body of Christ. That's the important thing. It's a ministry to the body. It's to help and, and encourage the body of Christ. And it's the Spirit that empowers that. There's something about doing it that brings you joy and you see God working in other people. How do I know my spiritual gift is teaching? Because you're not falling asleep. And you're getting it. And you're not bored. Even though my mom was yawning over there. You're not bored. Alright? That, that's my spiritual gift. Now you, you plot me and put me into some other capacity and you, you don't want me to visit you in the hospital. So don't get sick. Because when I'm done, you're going to want to pull the tubes out. Really. I'm, not, I, I'm just not gifted that way. But I, I can teach. I, I can't do other things. The Spirit gives you an ability, a ministry, to minister to the body of Christ. And He empowers you to do that. He energizes you. He gives you the ability to do that. And it's not you doing it. It's the Spirit doing it. You just got to get out of the way. And let the Holy Spirit work. But the Holy Spirit is what empowers you to do service. It empowers you to exercise your spiritual gift day by day. All six ministries happen at the moment of salvation. Conviction, or regeneration, indwelling, empowerment, all of that. The first four can never be lost. You can't lose regeneration. You can't be unborn again. You can't lose your salvation. You can't go back to spiritual deadness because it's God who maintains your spiritual life, not you. 
You don't maintain it. If it was up to us to maintain our spiritual life, we'd all be dead. We can't do it. God does it. Yeah. There is a term that used to be used and still exists. Backsliding. Now, I don't believe that means losing your salvation. No, it doesn't. used to mean that. I mean, I used to believe that when I was raised that way. But anyway, I no longer do. But my point is, because I know you can't lose your salvation, backsliding simply means you have ceased to allow yourself to be filled with the Spirit. Yeah, you're walking in disobedience. You're walking in disobedience. And by the way, if you're walking in disobedience, you're a Christian, what does God do? Chastens you, convicts you. Yeah. Yeah. I don't believe in such a thing. We're almost out of time, but I don't believe in this term called carnal Christian, if by that you mean a state of existence. If you mean that you can be a Christian and have no, no appetite for spiritual things, no desire for the Bible, no desire for holiness, no desire for any of that, you're not a Christian. Now, you can be in disobedience and miserable, yeah, acting carnally in that sense. But carnal as a state of existence, no. It does. What does Romans 8 says? It says if you're carnal, you're not a believer. You can act in a carnal way, backsliding, disobedience, but God brings chastening to you. He does not allow you to stay there because you're his child. He's going to bring discipline. The other two things, by the way, you need daily provision. If you want to walk in the Spirit, what do you need to do? Ask for the filling of the Spirit and, and learn, practice thinking spiritually, letting the Word of God dwell in you. The filling of the Spirit can be lost by quenching the Spirit. How do you quench the Spirit? Sin. I'm quickly going through this. You can read the notes. It can be lost by grieving the Holy Spirit, doing something you don't want that, that, that you shouldn't be doing. You know, you can grieve the Spirit. That's a person, right? And if you grieve and quench the Spirit, you're walking in a carnal way, God is going to discipline you. Um, I'm not going to get through the blessings. You can read those. Um, almost got it. Yeah. Yeah. No. You got to worry. One of the problems is we have this concept that that there are Christians, carnal Christians, and unbelievers. The New Testament doesn't have that concept. It's like pregnant, almost pregnant, not pregnant. All right? You are or you aren't. Now, you can be a believer and act in a carnal way, and God will bring discipline to you. Yes. But that is not a state of existence. That's the problem. There are people that say, well, you know, I, know, I remember when he went forward, you know, five, 35 years ago, but I know he's not living for the Lord, but I know he's okay, he's in. He may not be in. That's what James is saying. If, faith, if, you have, if you say you have faith and no works, your faith is dead. Dead faith. Alright, we're out of time. Father, thank you for this time and I pray that you would help us to ponder what we've learned. 
Thank you so much for this glorious day and for this truth. In Christ's name, amen.